3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, It is 7am and today is the 24th of October. Uh, My name is Fung and in the studio with me is Ifka. Good morning Ifka. Good morning. How are you going today? Yeah, well, pretty good. Uh, I had a good weekend. Uh, I saw Sheik and Nile Rogers and the wonderful Chaka Khan at Sydney My Music Bowl. So it was nice to be back at the bowl. I feel like that's a really good indicator that we're coming into summer for me. So it was yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how was the weather though that day? It held off. Oh. It was, uh, rain was forecasted um, and it sprinkled for like two seconds at one point, but it did not rain. It got a bit chilly towards the end, but it was, yeah, considering it was October and we were at an outdoor venue, I feel like we did very well. That's true. That is very good. Yeah, people keep telling me about the gigs that they're going to and I'm like, oh, this person's coming? <laughs> like, these people are coming? Yeah, internationals are back mm. in a big way. But also artists and groups that have been around for a long time coming. And people doing like 20th anniversary tours that I hadn't like it seems wild to me that they've been around for 20 years it's in that we're in that uh, era I suppose of our music taste yeah. I know uh, Block Party and Interpol are coming out uh, next week or the week after and that surprised me <laughs> is that 20 years I think so yeah oh, okay <laughs> yeah I feel like a lot of those groups are um yeah it's like very nostalgic you're like oh <laughs> I feel so old mm. um Yeah, I think like a friend's going to see Chemical Brothers. Yeah, and I think it it speaks to a lot more in this time where things are so uncertain and everyone's kind of struggling. Everyone's really clinging on to, in in a good way, like the classics and things you know, and I think it's a pretty good time to be a a nostalgia band at this point. Yeah, things that feel comforting. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, let's go through what we have on today's show. What are we starting off with, Ivka? We're going to start this morning's show with some snippets uh, recorded at the rally held in Coburg last week, Thursday the 19th of October, which was called by Mary Beck councillors Sue Bolton and Monica Hart, where 1,000 people gathered to call for a free Palestine. uh, After that, we'll be hearing um, a segment from Think Again, where Jennifer spoke with Mari Brennan, who has been a professor at several universities. And Mari spoke to Jennifer about the drastic or the radical, um, I shouldn't say radical, radical in a negative way, <laughs> the ways in which university, the university system has changed so much since, since the 90s, moving to a more um, corporatized, commercialized, top-down um, management model. Um, so that's a really interesting discussion. At 8 o'clock, we'll be joined by Shannon Malak from uh, the No Third Tyler Runway Project. So uh, they're a group of 
um, activists working together to stop the construction of a third runway at Melbourne Airport. Um, there are a lot of concerns for the environment as well as the um, health and safety of the local community. So that's coming up at eight o'clock. And we'll finish the show uh, playing a chat Marissa from Doing Time had with Auntie Janelle Speed, a Birabupi Dungadi woman and community consultant um, about the housing crisis this country is facing, highlighting that the ability to access safe and affordable housing is one of the key issues affecting Aboriginal people. We'll be back with the news headlines right after this message. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today, Tuesday the 24th of October. You heard a message just now uh, encouraging people to get down to this Sunday's rally in support of a free Palestine. Uh, I'll be mentioning um, that event as well as some others happening across the state um, in just a moment. But to start, here are some updates from Palestine so around 400 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli air attacks on Gaza uh, in the last 24 hours. So this was um, reported yesterday, according to Palestinian health officials, with 60 killed in overnight attacks. Israel bombarded residential areas in Gaza, including the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp and locations close to Gaza's Al-Shifa and Al-Quds hospital. Israel also intensified raids in the occupied West Bank overnight, with two Palestinians killed during a raid on Nablus. Um, Israel raids uh, targeting Palestinians in the occupied West Bank continued in the morning, with dozens taken into custody since Sunday. Um, the official news agency Wafa said in a report released at about 10am yesterday that at least 120 Palestinians, including 40 workers from Gaza, were arrested across the occupied West Bank. Since uh, October 7, at least 4,651 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks on Gaza, while um, more than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel. Uh, Israel settler attacks have also significantly increased since October 7. Settlers have forced several Bedouin communities to leave their land. There continue to be rallies and events held across so-called Australia in support of Palestine. Uh, on Sunday, tens of thousands of people gathered outside the State Library of Victoria uh, and marched through the CBD to show their support and solidarity with the Palestinian community. It was really great to be um, 
with so many people there, um, lots of families, um, people from different communities across the state. Um, so yeah, that was that was really great. Um, so here are some upcoming events that are happening across the state. So today, Tuesday the 24th of October, um, there will be a solidarity rally and fundraiser held at University Square in Carlton at 1pm near the University of Melbourne. All proceeds will be donated to the Olive Kids Foundation. So that's 1pm at University Square. Um, also tonight, there is going to be a forum uh, being held. Um, it's uh, called Palestine Oppression and Resistance, featuring a 3CR presenter and Palestinian activist Yusuf Al-Rumawi from Palestine Remembered. So that's tonight at 6.30pm. Uh, there'll be meals available from 6pm. It's happening at the Resistance Centre, which is located at Level 5, 407 Swanston Street, Melbourne. Um, it's also available on Zoom, so make sure you check out our show notes afterwards to find the link to that. But you can also go to um, the Green Left website to find out more. There will also be another community forum happening tonight that's being organised by the Islamic Council of Victoria. Um, it's called Let's Talk Palestine, featuring a panel of five speakers, including Nasa Mashni from APAN and Tasneem Samak from Free Palestine Melbourne. Uh, this is an online forum taking place on Zoom tonight at 6pm. Uh, to register, you can find the event details on the ICV link tree. So you can go to... Um, Linktree, which is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash i-c-v dot official. On Wednesday, the 25th of October, there will be a Black and Palestinian Solidarity Rally being held outside Parliament House Victoria at 6pm. Uh, this has been organised by Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance and Free Palestine Melbourne. So again, that's 6pm tomorrow outside Parliament House. If you're located on Wadawurrung country, there will be a community vigil being held on the steps of Geelong City Hall between 6.30 and 8pm on Thursday, the 26th of October. And this has been organised by Free Palestine Geelong. So again, Geelong City Steps, uh, City Hall Steps between 6.30 and 8pm. There are a couple of events happening on Friday, the 27th of October. There will be a protest for Palestine at Monash University Clayton campus, uh, the Forum Lawn at 2pm. And then in the evening between 7 and 8pm, there will be a vigil uh, at Federation Square. And finally, you heard this in the message just before, but on Sunday, the 29th of October, there will be another rally to end the war in Gaza and free Palestine at 12pm outside uh, the State Library. So, um, yeah, bring your family and friends, bring, bring a sign um, and stay safe. Uh, in other news, as Sudan's civil war enters its sixth month, civilians are facing... Um, a humanitarian crisis as relief funding dwindles and army-imposed restrictions um, uh, stopping its delivery of, um, yeah, according to aid groups and activists who have reported this to Al Jazeera. Along with rising hunger, um, Doctors Without Borders warns that Sudan's medical sector is on the verge of complete collapse. Uh, Médecins Sans Frontières uh, provides five hospitals across Khartoum with either medical supplies or international specialists or both. 
The war between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces has um, fractured the country and put at least 24 million people, more than half of the population, in dire need of assistance, according to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA. Um, nearly 6 million people have been uprooted from their homes and are now internally displaced or have fled the country. Uh, we um, now go to some local news. Listeners are warned that the following news story contains the name of an Aboriginal person who um, has died and there are mentions of self-harm in this story as well. An Indigenous teenager um, was found unresponsive in a prison cell after suspected self-harm um, incident um, and has died. Officers discovered 16-year-old Cleveland Dodd at Unit 18 Youth Detention Facility at um, Casuarina Prison in Western Australia the early hours of October 12 after he contacted them through the intercom. He was taken to Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth in a critical condition where he died shortly after 10pm on Thursday in the company of family members. Um, the department is continuing its investigation into the incident and says it will fully cooperate with a mandatory coronial inquest. Unit 18 is a standalone youth facility at the Maximum Security Casarina Men's Prison. Um, both Unit 18 and Banksia Hill Detention Centre have reported high rates of self-harm incidents and detainees being placed in prolonged lockdowns. Um, to If you'd like to speak to someone... Um, about this, uh, you can contact 13 Yarn, which is 139276, um, or you can contact Lifeline on 131114. Uh, to Queensland now, the co chair of Queensland Interim Truth and Treaty Body, Aaron Fa'aosu, says the state government has given assurances that its treaty process will proceed after the opposition Liberal National Party withdrew its support. Um, Faoso, uh, a descendant of the Saibai region in the Torres Strait, said board members of the Truth and Treaty Body met government representatives on Friday. Um, this week, after the um, voice referendum, the Liberal National Party announced it had withdrawn its backing and would repeal the legislation if elected next year. Um, the Premier Anastasia Palachuk then appeared to backtrack, saying treaty would require bipartisan support. Fah also said the LNP's decision to withdraw support was disappointing given the treaty process had been underway since 2019 and had been designed by the government and First Nations people. Uh, he said, though, that the government had confirmed it would release expressions of interest soon as planned for two key bodies, a treaty council and a board of inquiry to conduct a truth-telling and healing process. Finally, the Fair Work Ombudsman um, stated that it recovered more uh, than half a billion dollars in underpayments to workers in the latest financial year, um, according to its annual report, which was published yesterday. In 2022 to 23, $509 million for around 250,000 underpaid workers was recovered. This is the second largest annual figure recorded behind only... Uh, 2021 to 2022, more than half of last year's recoveries came from large corporate and university employers, um, and there were around 81 litigations filed in the last financial year, including against a university for the first time. 
Um, those Vin the News headlines for today. Uh, we'll be back with our first segment uh, right after this. The fears are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafiya to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S a 3CR supporter. We're going to play some snippets for you now, recorded at a rally held in Coburg on Thursday the 19th of October. The rally was called by Mary Beck councillors Sue Bolton and Monica Hart and 1,000 people gathered to call for a free Palestine. This audio was recorded by Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast. Tell me what you think. I think that apartheid always brings violence. It's absolutely inevitable. And the system that's there with the Palestinians being isolated, the way the... and the barriers put up by the Israelis on the Palestinians are unsustainable and it's absolutely inevitable that they either um, that there will be violence when you treat people this way and there's no solution that can possibly be with settle the agreed territories being now settled by Jewish people from around the world when the local inhabitants have been moved off that land. And so I think it's incredibly sad but absolutely inevitable. What Did you have any opinion about uh, the uh, actions of our government and, say, the Americans and others, you know, giving the impression that this is a one-sided affair? Well, we keep talking about truth and they're not being honest the history of the setting up of israel and the history has made this violence inevitable the way we're supporting one side means it will go on forever we must insist that there be a fair and just resolution and that won't come by having uh, the palestinian state isolated the way it is. Um, that's why you've come today uh, and it's a talk out. We're in Coburg and uh, there's going to be a talk, uh, talk out, a speak up about Palestine and uh, the issue of the bombings that are going on. I just think it's such a tragedy. It, the, to expect that the Palestinians would sit back while there's settlements being done on the West Bank, it, it's just an absolutely absurd to suggest that and to suggest they can live in such a crowded area with the Israelis 
having full control of their borders, it just can't go on that way. So, of course, at some stage, you, you do have this bursting out. Um, there's a sense of uh, lack of natural justice going on, isn't there? I think there is. I, I saw, for example, The Age had the headline about babies being beheaded. Further down, it actually said that that wasn't actually true. Now, this was a headline, and to not publish that we actually had it wrong, I think that's an incredible dangerous mistake for even President Biden quoted about the awful things he'd seen and then later we hear that he hadn't actually seen them. Well that just can't be how we tell the world about what's going on. You know that's funny because uh, in the First World War when there was the propaganda against the Hun as it were, they talked about them basically eating babies. It's the same sort of propaganda, isn't it? We always try to demonise the people we don't like. That's just always happened and it always will. But our media and a president of the United States, of the democratic world, he should get it right. And when he gets it wrong, the statement we got it wrong should be made as loud as the original statement. I'm a Palestinian refugee that came from a stolen occupied land and I live here on stolen colonised land. I acknowledge the traditional owners and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture and I pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for gathering here today to unite forces against the ethnic cleansing and the ongoing genocide that Palestinian people have endorsed for the past 75 years. The pal Palestinian people all, like all people, deserve the right to live in peace, security, dignity. It is a fundamental human right that cannot be compromised or ignored. We cannot remain silent in the face of violence, displacement and the shocking acts of hatred. It must be stopped immediately. We say enough is enough. People have the right to be scared and overwhelmed by the heartbreaking ethnic cleansing and the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Witnessing the tragic losses of innocent lives, especially children, it is an intense, devastating experience. Yes, it hurts to see so many children slaughtered, tortured, killed and murdered. Children are found in pieces. And some bodies are thrown, blown up and scattered all over the place. <laughs> Different to, it's hard to identify what pieces go with what bodies? 
When we think of Gaza, we must remember that 80% of Gaza is the population are refugees from parts of Palestine, including Safad, Akbara, Haifa, Yafa, Ramli, and so many more. International laws preserve the rights to return to our land, yet the Palestinian remains occupied. In fact, the occupation, Palestinians have the right to resist. Last year, the Australian government recognised Palestine as an occupied land, granting us the right to resist under Australian law. Resistance goes beyond rallies. It involves the fight against occupation, Israel soldiers that do military services and are trained fighters. Very few are innocent civilians. The global community supports national, nations like Ukraine and, and in, in fights against Russia. The international, international community provides financial, um, provides financial food, water, blankets, weapons and fighters to free Ukraine. Are we any different? No. Or are we simply animals, like the Israeli Defence Minister labelled us, without the right of defending ourselves? Even animals have the right. We all, we have the right to defend ourselves. We are the right, we have the right to defend Israel army. No matter what the risk, we want to live free on our, on our land. Last month, Israel, Israel restricted Palestinians from entering Al-Aqsa Mosque. A place essential to our identity. For Palestinians, they need to have they need to have permission three months before entering Al-Aqsa Mosque. And once they have the permission, they get to the border and Israeli officers refuse to allow them entry because they can. They tell them, come back in a month or so. Visiting Al-Aqsa is a sacred act for us. Yet Israel control who allows, who is allowed causing enormous amount of frustrations. Even children are denied to the right to prayer in Al-Aqsa Mosque. Speaking about children, Israel is the only country in the world that arrests children for political activism and for throwing stones. Shame. They claim the children are breaching security laws. They force them to sign documents written in another language. And if the IDF security of Israel is so scared of the children throwing stones, that means we are stronger than them. It shows we have no fear. What we want to do is what do you want us to do? Stand back? We will resist. 
and watched quietly while our children are abused, tortured and thrown into jails? Shame! Many children in the Israel jail without convictions for years. They suffer unjust treatment and violations of their human rights. Many children recently, Israel's army personnel entered a home in Hebron and there were four young girls. The Israeli officers asked the young girls to strip naked to search for weapons in their own homes. How ridiculous. This is an invasion of privacy and abuse that violates global, global laws. Such actions cannot be tolerated and we must react against unjust discrimination. Israel Army commit, commits daily criminal acts on Palestinians. How many more examples do we need to show you? We stand with resistance. We are committed to resisting until Palestine is free. Free, free Palestine. Our right to fight back is not a terror campaign. It is the right to belong to all it is the right to belong to all people under any occupation. It is not just about demanding the war to stop on Gaza or the blockade of food, water, fuel and medical supplies to, the, to, to be lifted. We demand the end of occupation. The world needs to know, if you bomb us, we have the right to defend ourselves. Antifada. We urge the Australian government and the world to end ties with apartheid Israel. Stand with Gaza and end the, end the occupation and demand independence. Let us stand together. Let us use all available forms of protest. No one can deny our right to resist. Stop labelling us as terrorists. If you attack us, we have the right to defend our homes and our people. Now imagine the weight of betrayal the Palestinians have experienced from countries around the world. This is our message and it's, this is ethnic cleansing and ongoing genocide. It is a dark echo of history. What Hitler inflicted upon them, they are now doing to us. Choose the right side of history. Choose Palestine. Free, free Palestine. Free, free Palestine. Free, free Palestine. Thank you. That was some audio recorded at the rally held in Coburg last week, which was organised by local councillors Sue Bolton and Monica Hart, 
which was calling for a free Palestine. Thanks to Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast for capturing the audio. We're going to play you a track this morning. Uh, this song is called River by E. Bae. They are a French musical duo consisting of twin sisters.
Hey, this is Greta Ray, and you are listening to 3CR 855am Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast on 855am. Here in the show, we've talked a lot about uh, university um, strikes, um, workers, students coming together to um, fight against the poor treatment of workers, um, workers being underpaid, and the increasingly um, corporatization of universities. So we're going to play for you uh, a segment f- um, from Think Again with Jennifer Burrell. Jennifer spoke with Mari Brennan, who has been a professor at several universities and has researched and written about the dire changes in our university system since the 90s. In this discussion, she outlines the moves to a more commercialised, top-down management model in which academic staff have less say um, and many have become demoralised and burnt out as a result. Uh, this is also a gender equity issue as many of the casual staff left carrying the load are women. The quality of the education being provided by universities has been greatly diminished in the process of all the economic restructuring over the last few decades. Um, but on a more positive note, Mari does share her ideas about how universities could be redirected. So to jump right into it, Mari, can you tell us about uh, the fundamental changes that have happened in the university sector since the 1990s, particularly the shift in power and resources to central management away from academic staff? Thanks, Jennifer. I think there there was never a golden age. There was always managerialism. But... um, I think a key issue that has shifted the sector in Australia has been the cut in the late 90s of 40% of the operating grant, which meant that that has never been returned. Mm. So when was that cut? Between 96 and 2000. Okay. And what that really meant was that uh, universities had to find other sources of income just to be able to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also meant restructuring of universities. But the other source of income that was taken up was largely the international student. Mm. Um, and that really pushed the whole thing in the whole sector into kind of competing with each other. Um, we have a market for... Um, for the university sector and we, and all of the institutions had to magnify what had been very minor differences mm. um, really into major ones that they could market themselves by and attract students and um, many of the states were very um, very much involved in that whole process so for example, South Australia, you know, the university state and all of that kind of stuff um, because they're relying on it for, for income. And what that has also meant is a kind of a prevalence of budgetarianism. Everything is about the bottom line mm. and that that turned it into um, an easier way for manage, for the senior people to take up that whole process of very authoritarian managerial mm. sort of approaches, which also created a distance between 
the management caste, if you like, and the rest of the university, and a lot of speed policy, you know, w- without much consultation or discussion or anything. You know, this is what we're going to do. And that was um, reinforced in the 2000s by Brendan Nelson, mm-hmm. who was the Minister for um education and um, that included universities and he decided that even though universities are set up in each state um, by acts of parliament that he would um, require a certain number of people and and a certain composition of the university councils which had previously had students and staff as full members and, and they had to be much smaller mm-hmm. and more business oriented and that that reinforced that managerial corporatization mm-hmm. you know we we work like a corporation which is for profit even though universities are not for profit yeah, i think um tudge um the education minister tudge mm-hmm. uh said something about um focusing on industry partnerships and making students work ready so yeah. all, all feeding into the broader economy yeah that's and that's um that's had a really huge effect on what counts inside the university because what counts is commercialisation. So even the people who are in STEM, the sciences, technology and um, mathematics and things, um, which are currently being pushed very strongly, but that goes right back to um, to the Howard years. And what that means is we can only look at research and... We, what we want as teachers who will do, um, or you know, economists or whoever, engineers, who are going to be helping think about certain things that are going to be able to be commercialised. So that's mm. changed what counts as good research. Yeah, and, and which also assumes that you can tell in advance what research is going to be able to be commercialized anyway that's right i mean it's a ridiculous idea that you can that you can predict what's needed but it's also meant that um the humanities and social sciences have been really devalued um because um they're rarely able to be um, commercialised in the same kind of way but it also tends to mean that the kind of critical edge and the capacity for dissent about what's going on in the country was really closed down because a lot of the people in humanities and social sciences are the people who lead a lot of that work and that that's been um, really seriously undermined. It's a critical analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the scientists who are working on environmental issues, for example, are also... um, very much under the issue of you can't dissent internally. You know, that's been one of the effects on the staffing is that, you know, people now sign their um, employment contracts and it says you can't do anything to bring the university into disrepute, so you can't have internal dissent. Mm -hmm. And that's also reinforced by things like the enterprise bargaining process, which meant you know, from the 90s really, um, that every institution has to spend a lot of time doing their enterprise bargaining, which sets management against 
mm-hmm. unions and again so therefore against the staff both professional staff and academic yeah. staff and and that was something i wanted to ask you about Murray. what effect is all of this having on university staff so you've just started to talk about that yeah, yeah, yeah. well the issue of um the the thing about managerialism and its authoritarian nature is that it continues the patriarchy and that that um a lot of the junior staff and the um casual staff are being really exploited and a lot of them are women mm-hmm. and they therefore there's not much in the way of career paths there but it, that it occurs right across the board of genders and um and what what i think starts to happen is in the there's been lots of restructures which is another word for downsizing mm-hmm. um we lost 17 and a half thousand staff during covid mm-hmm. well, that's from huge. the sector that is really huge and it was done really kind of in the name of we're all we're all facing really tough times economically because we've lost the international students that kind of stuff but part of the problem is that they're only doing short term thinking about redundancies and voluntary whatever so they'll let people go or they'll target particular areas in the restructure but they're not actually looking more than a year or so out they're just looking to balance the budget which has had really serious issues because you know quite often the most expensive people are obviously more senior and you lose all your senior people and then people are doing acting in senior jobs who haven't really had the background and experience to be able to do that and that makes it easier for the senior management to act on um the middle management which have become like the foot soldiers foot soldiers of management yeah, yeah. And, I, and i understand uh the central management councils is that what yeah. they're called i understand they used to have a lot more academic staff in them mm-hmm. and you've got a lot more of um business people business people so they're the people making the decisions but they're not voted in either no um so they're making the decisions but i guess from what you're saying is they're not really informed about the substance of the teaching and the research and the no. fields that they're making decisions about that's right and they're not even um informed about the professional work that is needed to make something happen you know whether I mean another effect of the staffing issues is um, is this huge growth of casualization and most universities keep saying well we're going to cut this down but um one of their other the other strategies in many universities is to turn academics into teaching only instead of teaching and research mm-hmm. and that that actually means that you'd separate out the researchers so you might have more research only or and a few people who do teaching and research but the great bulk of people have these huge workloads um of just teaching yeah and and what how what does what effect does that have on staff morale and how they feel about their work well some of the research that we've done is that you know the not just burnout but um people saying well i'm just here to implement oh. it, you know what someone else has written um 
but a whole lot of the cas- both the casual staff and the teaching only staff have huge backgrounds in good pedagogy etc but in the um, workload a- allocations you don't get I mean you're supposed to do to uh, mark a 3,000 word essay in 20 minutes well there's no way you can be even read that for example in the humanities and social sciences so assessment has become narrower um, it's become and it and it is often taken up by junior people all the all the work has to be done by junior people teaching only junior people and that that actually puts a huge pressure on them but they aren't paid for student consultation time mm. so that means i mean that reinforces the idea of students are now the customers of the university rather than you know being there as partners in teaching and learning um, or as researchers how is all the all the changes in the university system since the 1980s and the pressures of commercialization and top-down management top-down command and control how's that all affecting the quality the quality of the education which we're meant to be so good at in Australia as a providing as a product. So how's it all affecting the quality of education being provided by Australian universities? Well, I mean, it does vary from university to university, often um, depending on whether you're an elite university um, with more money. Um, And it, but, sorry, it is a really tough time because partly because of the workload issues if you're working huge numbers of hours as an early career researcher who has to get runs on the board in order to be able to get time in their in their work allocation to do some research so you're not a teaching only person then what that does is make it really really hard for them to have a good enough good time to plan and prepare and everybody's workload is awful mm. everybody's and what about the size of tutorials yeah well many places have got them as 35 i well, mean that's ridiculous know. that's not even a tutorial is no. it no it's a class or a, you know back in the, back in the days at, when i was an undergrad at melbourne you know your tutorial would be 15 mm. um and the poorer the universities, the larger the, the size. And distance education, um, now called, you know, online, um, makes it appear that it's very easy to manage all these people. But the quali- it's very hard because good teaching, for example, um, and I will get to a bit about the implications for research later, but good teaching requires you to be, to know your students mm. and you have to build a relationship in order to be able to help them grow from where they are to where they might want to go and where where they might need to go in the particular discipline area that you're working on if you don't have enough time to do that and you don't get to spend enough time with your students then what they get is a standardized sort of teaching to the middle if you like or teaching to the top end so that that makes it very hard for many students to really um, engage and get excited Mm. you know and and that you really need that to in order to get the best 
outcomes for the students and so they can imagine what they are how do, how do i work as a mathematician or a you know scientist or a performing artist or a, or a teacher or a journalist all of those issues they become there's ethical issues in there and it's really really hard to both be a, t a good teacher and the ethical responsibility to future generations and and knowing your students and it's also for the students to understand the ethical dimensions of the work that they're doing as knowledge workers you know because all of us are knowledge workers staff and students mm. and so that growth of standardization the lack of time and capacity it also means that you tend to have little a program which is made up of little bits but like it's modules. not yes but not it's not coordinated as well mm -hmm. and although th um the overall programs will be approved the in the day-to-day -day, it's really hard to realize that yeah and what about research if you could briefly say yeah. something about research well the the issue then is every all the staff are um they get their metrics their their measurements have you done you know a published in a in a top level journal have you got a grant have you um finished supervising a student in 3 years for a phd that kind of stuff that affects the staff as much as it does the students and the student researchers as well as the staff have are getting less and less money really um, and that that actually makes, like for example in my field, education research has been really, really underfunded, mm -hmm. even in the national um, arena, so they don't get a share of, of the, what available research money there is they get very little of it. Well, that's rather ironic, seeing yes. the whole product that we're selling overseas to overseas students is education. That's right. Yeah. So, thank you for that, Mari. <laughs> um, so, I'm going to try and have a bit of a positive turn now. <laughs> so, uh, because I can see you holding up a big wrong way go back sign to our universities, uh, and it's, it's certainly unsustainable. Uh, what redirection would you suggest our universities take? I think we've got to undermine marketisation because that's. That, what that does is push for everything to be about accumulation of profits and um, and competition. We actually have to start much more collaboration both across the universities and internally. And I think we've got to also work much more toughly on the problems of our time. You know, that whether it's climate, um, planetary um, collapse, um, whether it's uh, you know unstable weather and its effects like bushfires, floods, droughts, um, food security, water security, all of those issues are there. They are all both social and not and you know physical, if you like, um, and that requires us to do a lot more interdisciplinary work. But we also need to make that local. 
because the things that someone discovers up at up at the Northern Cape are going to be very different to someone who's living in East Gippsland or in Tasmania, for example, or Central Australia. So we've got to think really hard about making community um, community partnerships to try and work on the local problems that matter. That's a topic that my partner Lou and I have written about as b- mm. both affecting schools Lucy as well as universities, yes. Mm. Um, and trying to think through what that means at a university level means we've got to think differently about what's the purpose of a university. Mm. Is It's there for the good of society mm. and it's... Its knowledge work, I think, is now more urgent, but it actually needs to be shared because there's knowledge out there in the communities. They know how these issues are affecting them. They also know and have some ideas about where they might go. And what we've got to do is is work with them to bring the knowledges together to try and act locally. And that means... You know, usually university thinking is about, uh, how will I put it, abstracting things from the local and having generalisations or or final um, understandings of what findings are. But we're not going to get those kind of conditions. And that means we've got to think much harder about how do we work together? How do we work across our disciplinary boundaries inside the university? But also how do we work with um, activists? Um, how do we work with um, the the ethical issues? That re- mean we're taking public money to do things. It ought to, They ought to be important things, things that actually help make the planet and people's lives mm-hmm. um, more just, more fair, more sustainable, and how does that how does that affect how we design a teaching program? How does that design, you know, help us think about um, what kind of blue skies thinking there might be in the sciences, as well as how do we bring the existing knowledge to bear on that problem? Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, that certainly makes sense. I suppose uh, with the neoliberal econo- economic rationalist approach, which we used to call it, is yes. is universities are seen to be serving society by serving the economy. Yes. And it's just assumed that if you serve the economy, you're serving everyone. Whereas mm. what you're saying just makes so much sense, but it shouldn't be so radical, shouldn't it? No, work it's not directly at all radical. With communities. Yep. Work, work um, cross, in a cross-disciplinary way for the public good about issues that matter mm and issues that will impact everyone and the planet into the future. And our students at the universities um, are knowledge workers too. They can be part of those research teams. Mm. They can be part of, that can be part of their teaching Mm. at the university and out there. That was Mari Brennan uh, talking with Jennifer from Think Again. Mari has been a professor at several universities and has researched and written about the dire changes in our university system since the 90s. We're going to play a track for you now, and this one is Black Nation by Anna Emma Donovan.
was Black Nation by Emma Donovan. Shannon Melak is one of the lead campaigners for the No Third Teller runway. She has a passion for animal welfare, climate action and disability inclusion. She is also a community advocate and activist for her lifelong community of Brimbank and founded the Brimbank Sustainability and Climate Action Group. Shannon joins us to talk about the campaign to stop the construction of a third runway at Melbourne Airport. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Shannon. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, Federal Transport Minister Catherine King and Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek are currently assessing the proposal for a third runway at Melbourne Airport. Could you please summarise this project for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So... Melbourne Airport has long had a plan to develop a four-runway hashtag um, system. Now, what a lot of people don't realise is that the plan has significantly changed from what was originally proposed uh, when Melbourne Airport, or Tullamarine Airport as it was known, uh, was developed. What's currently on the table at the moment is a third runway that runs in a north-south direction. Um, in building or constructing this third runway, they're going to shorten the current east-west runway. What that'll mean is that 95% of all aircraft will be forced into a north-south runway um, because essentially that east-west one will become defunct for most aircraft that is used today. Now, the north-south runways actually direct traffic straight over people's homes and also our schools mm-hmm. uh, and businesses. So what we're going to see is a significant increase in traffic coming over our homes. But not only that, the whole reason for Melbourne Airport wanting to construct a third uh, runway is to actually quadruple their current um, traffic. So they've actually said we actually want to increase aviation fourfold. So not only are we going to now see 95% of uh, air traffic coming over our homes, they actually want to increase that traffic on top of that, um, which obviously has a lot of repercussions to the community as well as to the environment and to climate. Mm. 
Mm, totally, that expansion is is huge. Uh, what impacts would this runway have on the biodiversity in the area? Yeah, so there's quite a significant um, change to the landscape that's going to occur uh, as a consequence of building um, the runway. So Melbourne Airport has actually stated that essentially they're going to clear fell over 136 hectares of EPBC protected grey box woodland. That woodland is actually the habitat for um, the swift parrot, which was just recently named Australia's bird of the year and is critically endangered. There's around 300 left um, and they're going to clear fell their habitat. There's also other animals that obviously live there, kangaroos, for for example. Um, There's a lot of other wildlife that lives in the area as well. But the, what they're going to do is, in order to mitigate things like engine strike and things like that, they need to remove food and water sources um, from the area. So they're also going to divert a creek, uh, I believe, underground, if you can believe it. So they're actually going to divert one of our creeks. Um, now, they're also going to have to move a lot of soil, which has been identified previously as being contaminated with PFAS. Um, it's the same contaminant that has actually gone through our river systems already, um, obviously due to the fire retardants that have been used for multiple years at airports. And this is actually going to be shifted and, of course, is likely to pollute greater areas. So there's also a lot of other animals uh, that live in the area. We also have a lot of uh, parks in the area. And when I say parks, we've got at least one national park. We've got several state parks. Um including the cool and wetlands. Um, <laughs> so these are actually parks that are, have got a significant number of wildlife uh, within them and hundreds of different species. And Melbourne Airport in their own documents have actually identified several that are going to be um, impacted by this, including endangered species such as the tussock skink, the golden sun moth, the growling grass frog. Um, and I know that recently there was an approval for a jet fuel pipeline. I'm not too sure where the construction on that is, but the grey-headed flying fox would also be impacted by that as well. Um, and we also know that there's a nice little family of wedge-tail eagles that sort of live near the airport as well. So chances are they're going to uh, have to be moved along for that as well. Um, and my understanding is that culling animals is still very much a part of engine strike mitigation, um, particularly for aviary uh, species. Mm, you can't see me in the studio, Shannon, but I was shaking my head in disbelief for most of that. Um, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, you touched on this a little bit before with the, uh, like the, the a number of flights coming into the Melbourne airport is projected to quadruple, but I would love you to discuss a little bit on how this will further contribute to climate change. Right. So, first of all, as most people are probably aware, aviation is actually one of the greatest contributors to the climate crisis uh, due to the fact that we're using fossil fuels in our planes. Um, The other thing to take note is that the emissions are actually only calculated during takeoff and landing. They're not actually taken for the duration of the flight, (laughs) Um, which seems absolutely bizarre, Um, especially when you've got an airport that's touting that it's going to, you know, hit net zero targets. Don't ask me how the hell you can actually do that. Uh, Essentially, you know, you're not calculating them correctly in the first place and uh, we have reason to believe that most of the calculations they're providing are actually inaccurate um, or falsified because of the way it's calculated. So it's going to have a huge impact um, on what we're doing. And we're in a climate emergency. I mean, 
Most experts that are working in, you know, sustainability or in climate action are actually saying we need to decrease our aviation, um, not increase it. And, you know, the Melbourne to Sydney route is actually, you know, one of the busiest flight paths in the world, not just in Australia, but in the world. Um, and it's only a distance of like 900 kilometres. At the end of the day, it's not really something that needs to be flown, yet it's one of the busiest flight paths around. So, look, it's just things that this whole project is going in the wrong direction. We're trying to reduce um, our emissions and reduce aviation, yet here we have an airport because of profits just wants to simply increase it regardless of the consequence. Mm. And can you talk about how this proposal will negatively impact the community, including people's health and wellbeing? Yeah, so, look... There's a lot of things to consider here um, and they, there's a lot of things that have sort of come about through speaking with various specialists. Uh, Dr Michael Housen is actually a member of our campaign and has often spoken to several of the issues that are actually associated uh, with both noise harm as well as UFPs being ultrafine particles. Um, so we do know that things like um, hypertension uh, can be a result uh, of, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here, but hypertension is one of the things that result from noise harm. Um, it also can create, you know, things like anxiety, depression, um, you know, lack of sleep just is generally nasty. It can also help contribute or bring in early onset of things like dementia. It can delay childhood cognitive development by up to seven months, I believe. So we don't really want to see our children suffer because of the noise harm. Uh, we've got ex-teachers also that have also said, you know, trying to teach a class of that sort of noise is just ridiculous. But the other thing is that um, the other thing we need to worry about at the uh, UFPs, like I said, um, ultrafine particles, there's a lot more information coming out about that now. And recent studies that have been conducted in uh, Europe and I believe over in America as well have basically said that uh, the things that we can kind of expect um, are th things like cancer, for example, you know, and premature birth weights, uh, uh, sorry, under birth weights, premature babies, um, early death, heart attacks, you know, respiratory disease. Um, there's a whole range of things that can actually, you know, strokes and, and just have a, a greater lower, uh, sorry, lower life expectancy due to these UFPs. So, I mean, it can hardly be considered surprising that when you're using, you know, toxic chemicals and, you know, you've got these fuels and that being laden over people's homes um, as well as our schools, that these sort of health impacts are going to happen. Now, the thing that's really quite frightening here is that there's been no independent uh, health impact assessment done. Um, Melbourne Airport has basically conducted their own, but we've not had access to it to be able to you know, determine what's in there, really. And they're not, they quote it, but they don't really provide the entire document. So one of the things we're actually calling for is an independent assessment um, that obviously looks, well, not just at the health impacts, but also has a look at multiple different things, such as environment, climate, um, as well as the economic impacts to the community. Mm, I think independent, uh, like, consultation and looking into those sorts of things seems like the absolute bare minimum to me. Uh, has, 100%. There, <laughs> has there been any consultation with the local community over this project? Look, not really. Um, last 
Uh, sorry, I'm trying to think back, you know, with the pandemic, you tend to lose dates a little. <laughs> uh, last year, Melbourne Airport did hold uh, a public forum, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Um, now, due to the fact that I'm personally immune compromised, I didn't actually go to the forum itself. It wasn't actually live streamed, so I couldn't actually watch that. Um, but several members of our campaign did attend and they more or less said, Anyone that tried to raise any objection or any concerns, Melbourne Airport just kind of dismissed it or said they'd get back to them and never did. Uh, we have run forums to try and engage with the community, inform them of what's happening. We've also invited um, state and federal MPs to attend these forums. Um, and the Labor government has failed uh, to show up, and actually so has the Liberal government for that matter. So we have had a few Greens MPs express interest, and the Greens party have actually come out and opposed um, the third runway as well. So we try to engage with a lot of uh, politicians. We've also tried to engage with a lot of council members. Now, outside of Brimbank, there hasn't been a lot of support from councils. Um, they seem interested in the argument that we sort of bring to them, but they haven't actually communicated any of this with their community members. So most people, if you sort of leave Primbank where there's actually been some advocacy, if you actually go outside to other areas such as Hume and Maribyrnong and Moody Valley, most people don't actually know that this is an issue or what's actually going to happen and what this expansion means for them because there's been no consultation. And, in fact, some... Councillors have actually expressed that they were <laughs> under advisement, that they weren't really going to be impacted by this, despite the fact that they're one of the most impacted LGAs in Victoria. So, you know, there's definitely not been proper communication or consultation from Melbourne Airport. And I think it's irresponsible for the federal government to approve a project that hasn't ha actually had any independent um, assessments done and hasn't actually consulted properly with local councils and with the residents who are going to be most likely impacted by this. The one thing that we did hear is that, as you mentioned before, Catherine King, who has the ultimate decision on this, she's actually acknowledged the fact that residents out in the eastern suburbs um, were actually concerned about noise and that she'd take that under consideration. Yet she hasn't heard from anyone in the northwest, which will be the most impacted area. Um, and, I mean, this project is actually going to impact a lot of areas. It actually has quite a large radius, and that's something that people don't realise. We often hear the argument, oh, well, if you don't like the noise, don't live near the airport. But a, a lot of people don't realise that this is actually going to expand as far out as to the Macedon Ranges and beyond. Um, so we're not talking about a localised issue. We're talking about something that's not only going to encompass Melbourne, but actually go into our rural areas as well. So it's quite a large impact. And there are documents that suggest this, including Melbourne Airport's own assessments, that actually clearly state that, you know, areas such as Macedon Ranges will actually be impacted, but they've now changed their measurements um, and their, the scales that they're using to uh, measure the impact areas in order to not show that those areas are going to be impacted. We're running out of time this morning, Shannon, but I did want to tell our listeners that there is a community forum being held tonight by the No Third Teller Runway and Climate Action Maribyrnong. Can you briefly touch on the focus of this event? 
Yeah, so like I uh, sort of said, is there hasn't really been a lot of engagement with the community to help them identify how they're going to be impacted by this project. And so what we're taking upon ourselves is to help educate the public and let them know what um, is sort of coming their way so that if they do have any objections, they can raise them. Um, if you don't know something's coming, then you can't object to it. So, you know, first and foremost, we want to make sure that the community is well informed and that they're going to have an opportunity to actually you know, speak to this. Um, the forum is on tonight. It is at the uh, Maidstone Community Centre in Maidstone at 7.30 tonight for anyone that wants to come along in person. Um, it will also be live-streamed on Zoom. Details for that can actually be found on our Facebook group, uh, which is just facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash no third teller runway. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Shannon. No, I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for helping us to get the message out there to the community. No worries. Thank you. Thank We've been chatting to Shannon Milak, one of the lead campaigners for the No Third Teller Runway. A reminder that there is a community event being held tonight to inform local residents about this new proposal. For more information, go to www.nothirdtellerunway. That is no 3rd colorrunway.net.au or head to our website after the show. We will be right back after these messages. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am. I'm going to play you a conversation now between Marissa from Doin' Time and Auntie Janelle Speed, Birupi Dungadi woman and community consultant. They'll be talking about the housing crisis in this country, highlighting the ability to access safe and affordable housing as one of the key issues affecting Aboriginal people. And we're going to be speaking now with Janelle who is an Aboriginal community consultant. Hello, Janelle. Welcome to the program. Oh, hello. How are you? Great to have you. Not bad. Janelle, I think we've interviewed you before on this show, and I want to welcome you today. Can you tell us what land you're from, first of all? Um, what land I live on or what land I am from? Both, really. Oh, Okay. Um, I'm a Birupai Dungadi woman and I live on the Garibal and Jackambool land. Beautiful, beautiful. So, Janelle, we were talking off air yesterday about housing and about, in some ways, I mean, it impacts everybody, doesn't it? But we talked specifically about how it affects Aboriginal people. Can you tell us a little bit about, about your work or what you think generally about what's happening? Um, well, housing is probably one of the um, key issues that impacts on Aboriginal people. Um, their ability to access safe and affordable housing in um, 
in the private market or in any market is, um, you know, being impacted by the the colonisation that has happened. Um, so yeah, um, it, it places an important thing for Aboriginal people because they need a house so they can, you know, live with some dignity and yeah. afford basic costs such as clothing and medical care, food, transport, education. If you don't have a home, you don't have a base. You don't have a safe place. And what do you think about Aboriginal, like, homelessness? Oh, look, I find it very sad. When I was a kid, it was never... People were never on the streets. They were, um, you know, someone always had a bed for them, but it's becoming harder and harder for people to uh, do that. And um, so now we have to rely on things like Aboriginal housing or social housing or, um, you know, trying to enter the market to build your own. Um, Tell us about the social housing. What is What is that? Um, it's a um, it, it just plays a role in, in providing housing for um, for people who um, who don't have that access to safe and affordable housing. You know, through the many challenges they may face in life. So um, sometimes they, you know, most of the people that seek social housing um, experience some form of disadvantage. Um, so we try to provide a safe and, um, I don't know, appropriate housing, ongoing housing, so yeah. that they can build a life. Um, You're pretty passionate about that, you know, about this stuff. Oh, I'm very passionate about um, home ownership. I think, um, I think everybody needs their their place to call home, their century, where they can connect to whatever it is they need to, and especially Aboriginal people. Um, being displaced all over Australia makes it very difficult, for, especially for Aboriginal people who don't live on country um, through no fault of their own. Um, it can be even more difficult. It's, it seems to me that one one of the things that I've found over the years in interviewing a lot of elders and, you know, Aboriginal activists is that some people are really frightened to speak out. Where do you think that comes from? Mm. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's generational stuff. Other times I think, you know, some people have found strength in their families and that to be able to speak out and they've got themselves educated and learnt how to use the systems that are there to use it. Um, some people haven't, but not everybody's made with the same bit of mongrel in them that I suppose true. some of us are. Yeah. One of the things that we like to do on the Doing Time show is, is to look at people's stories and tell us a little bit about your childhood, about uh, what you experienced. Um, Oh, I had an interesting childhood. I thought it was lovely. Um, I'm one of nine siblings. Um, I grew up... Um, I was born in Gundawindi, 
my father built our first um, house there in Gundawindi and it's still standing today. Um, then we moved to Glen Innes and my dad built the second house that he built and that was before the 67 referendum. So I grew up in a town where we, as an Aboriginal family, lived and owned our own house. Um, but when the um, Aboriginal housing came to town, um, my sister was involved in the legal service, so um, they had something to do with bringing them there. And um, I have paper clippings of my mother in the paper, the bulletin, where um, the interviewer is asking her about what she thought about Aboriginal people moving into these houses. Um, because there was a lot of animosity from um, people who lived in that area and they didn't want the Aboriginal housing in there. And my mum, um, in her usual stage ways, just said, um, I'd like these people to have to live where, um, that are complaining, to have to live where the Aboriginal people have to live, which was up on the common, um, up near the, the dump. So um, I don't know, we were always brought up to... Um, speak up for Aboriginal people who weren't as fortunate as um, my parents worked very hard to make it for us. Um, I lost my father very young, though, um, and then ended up living in a housing commission house, um, which was um, a different experience. And uh, then I've gone on to um, own my own piece of land now so um, and still paying it off and the mortgage and interest rates are scaring me so um, I suppose if that gives you an idea of my housing type of thing I think that you know it's housing is a, is a human right isn't it and it's, certainly, certainly it's a human is. right and obviously when colonisation came and 1788 happened, that's when the concept of housing came to Aboriginal people. And it's hard, especially when people are applying for houses. You know, some Aboriginal people or all people have gone to prison and then they get out and there's nothing out there for them or they might not have a birth certificate because of what's happened on the missions. Mm. Well, for 60,000 years or more, we seemed to have our housing under control and we didn't have a problem with housing, but yeah. um, since colonisation, we seem to have a lot of problems with housing. And, um, I mean, housing impacts on so many of the other disadvantages that we have. If you are incarcerated and, you know, we both know the stats on incarceration rates, um, especially for our young males, but our women, young women, are now creeping up past that level and um, they're the backbones of our family. They're the mothers of our children. And so, you know, it's, it's not only an impact on, um, on a safe environment to grow up, it's an impact on the, their, their whole family, their whole being, their whole culture, their whole... Everything. That's true. And it doesn't work very well when they come out of jail because they 
don't have the opportunity to um, have a rental record or um, anything like that. So they have to uh, apply to social housing and stuff. And so I'm glad social housing's there, but, you know, it wouldn't be if we were had more equity in the system and housing was um, something that was um, equitable for Aboriginal people. It's very true what you're saying, and I'm so glad that we were able to talk about this. It's nearly quarter past four, and I've got my second interview coming soon, but any final comments you wanted to make? Um, no, not really. Just, you know, we just have to keep working for better solutions, get we better do. outcomes for Aboriginal people. So um, I'll just keep keeping on. That was Marissa from Doing Time speaking with Auntie Janelle Speed on the housing crisis and how access to safe and affordable housing is a key issue affecting Aboriginal chat, Aboriginal people. That chat was first aired on Doing Time on the 9th of October. That is all we have time for this morning. Thanks for tuning in to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Just a quick recap of this morning's show. We started this morning playing some audio recorded at the Free Palestine Rally held in Coburg last Thursday, a rally called by Mary Beck councillors Sue Bolton and Monica Hart. We then played a conversation between Mari Brennan and Jennifer from Think Again. Marie has been a professor at several universities and has researched and written about the dire changes in our university system since the 90s. At 8am, we spoke to Shannon Milak, one of the campaigners for the No Third Teller Runway. There is a proposition to build a third runway at Melbourne Airport with little community consultation. A reminder that there is a community event being held tonight to inform local residents about this new proposal. For more information, go to www.nothirdtellerunway.net.au. And we just heard from Auntie Janelle Speed talking with Marissa on doing time about the housing crisis, highlighting that the ability to access safe and affordable housing is one of key issues affecting our First Nations people. Uh, You're listening to 3CR. Thanks for listening to Tuesday Breakfast. And as always, Accent of Women is up next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 